Hello, my name's Jonathan Self and I'm the founder of Honey's Real Dog Food. Honey's was delighted to provide the funding for this podcast. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com. Hello and welcome back to the Dog Nutrition Podcast. I'm Seb Masters. And I'm Penny Borum. So Darcy still seems to be enjoying his supper. It certainly sounds that way. If you heard our last episode, you'll know that we've been gathering opinion on dogs' evolutionary history and how that history might tie into their nutritional needs today. We've also heard differing opinions as to whether dogs have adapted adequately to deal with a more carbohydrate-based diet. I think it's fair to say that we were both left wondering whether the often plant-heavy diet dogs are eating is benefiting them or whether in fact it's detrimentally affecting their health. It's been pointed out that our dogs seem to be some of the sickest animals on earth. Many of the vets and experts we've been talking to believe that the poor nutrition most dogs receive plays a large part in this. Our canine friends, they say, are not equipped to digest the food they are currently fed. Dog nutritionist Dr. Connor Brady explains why he thinks dogs have not adapted to these more carb-based vegetarian diets. I would say because there hasn't been enough time, and more to the point, dogs aren't selecting their own partners anymore. So you need animals that select fit and healthy and strong and robust partners all the time. And that is what puts the selective pressure that changes the digestive system. But we have introduced roaming laws the last hundred years and introduced this crazy diet 70 years ago and so dogs don't get to, to choose their partners what we have is an, an incredible veterinary industry that can keep the symptoms at bay and we will just mate and mate and mate those dogs as as we see fit we have french bulldogs that have just terrible skin conditions westies that are gluten celiacs uh, that doesn't stop us mating these dogs we know red setters are celiacs that they can't eat wheat it doesn't stop us mating the two of them together no breeder ever thought to you know, marry two dogs together because I suspect she's better with gluten than her her mother. You know, those those considerations, the digestive system is not a, a consideration of, of how we breed dogs. We breed based on what they look like on the outside. We never care about what goes on on the inside, bar the fact we want our greyhounds and nurtures to run very fast. But even then, it's just how fast do they run? So there has been no effort made by humans at all to select a dog better adapted to this high corn, high wheat diet. We believe that the dog has been eating a, a high plant-based diet for a long time. It's not true. All the studies show that when they're left to their own devices, they haven't. They haven't been left to their own devices for about 100 years. And to suggest that that's enough evolutionary pressure where they're not selecting their own partners to force a sea change in digestive physiology that we're somehow missing when we analyze the dog and show you that it's still the exact same animal on the inside, it's just not happening. Dog nutritionist Connor Brady. It does make sense that this emphasis on breeding dogs for their looks has impacted on their capacity or incapacity to digest certain foods. But as we mentioned in the last two episodes, there is disagreement about the extent to which dogs have or have not adapted. You heard vet Danny Chambers in the last episode saying he thought they had adequately adapted. Now he explains how especially designed dry dog food diets are in fact helping to combat the obesity crisis in dogs. But he emphasises that dry dog foods, kibble, do differ in quality. 
there's a huge variety in quality of commercial diets. I'm talking about good quality diets with good quality ingredients, but I'm not advocating feeding the cheapest possible rubbish dog food you can to your dog because that you know that's not beneficial there's plenty of brands we you can do these are researched by scientists if you, you buy the right diet for the stage of your dog's life for its activity level you know it's got the right balance of nutrients it's either even worked out exactly how much you're meant to feed them for the weight the dog's meant to be but if you've got you know experts that have researched these things over decades how on earth do you think you can do better you know, just by buying some random ingredients at home and hoping you get the right balance. However, dog nutritionist Connor Brady profoundly disagrees. There was a great study by Krogdahl, 2014, 2016. And Krogdahl et al, and the rest of them, got out their chemistry sets. And they said, right, what is the difference between supermarket pet food? Okay, so that would be your, your cheap pet food. I can't name any brands, but the ones that are available in supermarkets. And then premium pet foods that you might get in pet shops. And then super premium pet foods, which is the stuff sold in, in by the vets, promoted as the best way of feeding a dog. And very, very scientific food with all sorts of um, you know claims. So what is the difference between those foods, aside price? And what they found was those foods were identical. Identical on protein content, on digestibility, on nutrient content. The only difference was the bag. That's it. But this has been told to me. I know the owner of, of, of a huge pet food company from the 1980s who sold up about 10 years ago. And he said, look, I used to make pet food for Ireland, the UK, France and Germany. It was a huge, I was the biggest producer. And he goes, we would have chicken and beef dry food. And we would change those bags depending on who was ordering tons of it. So it didn't matter if it was a French bag, German bag, different brands from England. It was all the same stuff, just better marketeers behind it. So that was the 80s and 90s. Now dry food companies will tell you it's completely different. But here we go, a study from five or six years ago, and they can't tell nutritionally any difference between these. I would say there is zero difference. I mean, difference so negligible that it's there's no point talking about it. It certainly doesn't justify the price from supermarket prices to five or six times the prices in fact it gets so insidious if you can buy dry foods from a vets that are magic dermal care dry food great for the skin and you'd say well wow, that's a great claim because my dog has bad skin because he's living on you know candy all his life so what is the science behind that what they do is they get 20 dogs eating standard dry food and they get their standard dry food fare and they get another 20 dogs eating the same dry food with a drop of fish oil on top of it and they find after a month or two the dogs eating the dry food with a drop of fish oil at last getting some omega-3 in their diet they're slightly less itchy well now this magic dermal care product is scientifically proven to be better for your dog's skin than their standard food which is true but that's an unfalsifiable comparison what they've done is they have just added in something they know will improve a situation measured it scientifically and said we have scientifically proven this is good for skin they can do that with any product for any issue and say this is scientifically proven and because standard vets are not trained to ask why they just do unfortunately they will say this is scientifically proven to be good for skin and it is it's just that they haven't actually compared it to dogs fed normal food because we know dry food is inflammatory we have those studies so they're just still feeding the inflammatory it's kind of like feeding you can still have that gobstopper but i've put some vitamin e in it so it's slightly better for you it's children's breakfast cereal with now with vitamin b and fiber it's on top of the worst possible start for your kid's day and life but they add in those ingredients to George Jetson a bit and make it feel a bit more scientific. And we fall for it every time because uh, we want quick dinners. It's a fact. Vet Richard Doyle finds himself reflecting on the way veterinary trainings 
might have affected vets' attitudes towards nutrition. When we go through university, our nutrition is, okay, if your patient has got kidney failure, then it's this. If it's got a heart problem or a liver problem, then it's this. If it's got IBD, then it's a packet of that stuff. That's all you need to know. And, you know, when you've got, as a student, when you've got all the other stuff you need to know, pathology, medicine, surgery, you know, all this stuff, if I can pass my exam just knowing that if my patient's got a kidney problem, I use this particular food and if it's got a different problem I use that particular food and if I can pass that way then done nutrition course sorted get my certificate and I'm a nutritionist I'm a physiologist I'm a surgeon I'm an internist um, I'm everything great but actually when people start saying okay what's in that food why why is that a good kidney food what's in it which makes it different to you know a, an IBD type food and more and more people are saying but my my dog's clearly a carnivore. You just have to look at it to see. And I think that's where it starts getting a bit tricky for vets who've been trained in a certain way and have certain of, of pat answers that are now being required to restudy, rethink, being challenged by new concepts presented to them by their clients. Vet Richard Doyle also explains how he sees one of the problems with kibble as the lack of transparency about its actual content. For example, he says it might theoretically be possible to produce a kibble with more meat protein, but we would never be able to tell. The word kibble always raises alarm bells because the problem with a kibble is you can't look at it and know what's in it. And it's like that scandal about um, what McDonald's puts in their burgers. It can be dressed up to look, smell, feel, like pretty well anything you like. So my rule of thumb is I only feed them something that I recognize as meat because if it's in a kibble form, I have no idea what's in there other than what the manufacturer is telling me. And the labeling laws at this stage preclude actually knowing how much proper meat is there in that. You know, all they have to do is say, okay, this is of animal origin, but you know, the skin and fur is in no way the same as muscle meat or organ meat or liver or kidney or whatever. So at that point, the curtain comes over and it's not possible as a consumer or as a customer to actually know what's in there. So my kind of thing is I have to be convinced by my eyes what's in there and see that it's meat and be convinced that it's meat, then I'm okay with it. If I can't, then I become quite dubious. But what do we know about kibble's constituents? What exactly is the carbohydrate content? Dog nutritionist Connor Brady. Well, first of all, you're not told because this information isn't important to us. So you're not told the carbohydrate content of dry food or the salt content or the sugar content. Go figure. The three things that you really want to know, you're not told. The average um, carbohydrate content of cereal-based pet food promoted by the veterinary industry will be about 50 to 60% carbohydrates. So that is an enormous amount of dextrinized carbohydrates. In other words, processed and digested down already, rapidly digested. People don't understand when, when um, they talk about spiking blood insulin and, and the things that come from eating high carbohydrate diets, they think sugar is the granulated stuff you put in coffee. And they're correct. That is one type of sugar. But pasta, white rice, white flour, potatoes, all that stuff is as good as sugar as anything else. It's one tiny digestive step away, particularly white rice as opposed to brown rice or 
you know, potato mash as opposed to potato with the skin on or whatever. If you take away that fiber, which slows down the digestion a bit, you are looking at a high carbohydrate, which is like a high sugar diet. That is blood sugar in an instant, a tiny longer instant than eating pure sugar, but a very high carbohydrate diet nonetheless. Vet Nick Thompson, who you heard in the first episode talking about the direct correlation between diet and the obesity crisis in dogs, explains how this can be understood in terms of the way kibble causes the hormone insulin to rise. As soon as that dog takes a a meal, the kibble breaks down, the, the sugars break down and you get this insulin rise. The carbohydrates enter the gut, are broken down by the enzymes within the gut, amylases. Glucose then enters the bloodstream. That is detected by the pancreas, which releases insulin. And the insulin gives the muscles this signal to store, to take up the glucose that is spilling from the gut into the blood and to pack it away. It says to pack away proteins a wee bit and fats a wee bit, but mainly glucose. So when a dog eats even a low fat kibble, there is a strong signal from insulin to store, 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 okay? When you're feeding raw food, which is much higher in fat and protein and lower in carbohydrates, you don't get as much of of this insulinogenic effect. And, um, and I think that's one of the really worrying reasons why, why kibble, well, it's one of the many reasons why kibble is, is bad for you, but it's maybe one of the most obvious causes. So it seems that the glycemic load is at the heart of this. It's the hormone insulin that allows glucose to enter the body's cells. Canine nutritionist Connor Brady explains that tackling the obesity crisis in dogs means understanding that we need to avoid spikes of insulin. So we know that that carbohydrates, rapidly digested carbohydrates, are at the centre of this obesity crisis. The dog's obesity crisis mirrors the humans. Dogs living on carbohydrate diets is ridiculous. And studies show that when you increase the amount of protein in the dog's diet, lo and behold, and drop the carbohydrates, they have better weight loss than you would do on the current advice from vets, which is keep the carbohydrates the same. We drop the protein and increase the amount of indigestible fiber, which is like a runway model, still eating Big Mac and chips every day, but eating more paper tissue in the days before a show to to pack up their stomach with, with indigestible material. A ridiculous way of dieting. We've got these major health issues, pancreatitis the same. But when we have the studies to show actually not feeding carbohydrates is a solution to pancreatitis, how are these foods still being sold? That pancreatitis is like a gunshot, apparently, because you're digesting yourself. It's a terrible condition. Two thirds of cats and dogs suffer some form of pancreatitis by their middle age and, and, and late years. This is totally unacceptable. A- a- agony. So between the cancer and the obesity and pancreatitis, kidney disease, skin conditions, gut conditions, all rocking in animals. And we have solutions to these and we have the science to back it up. Get them off the carbs. It's still not recommended. And so... That for me is the worst bit. That would agitate most people more than anything. We previously heard from Connor Brady that the Crogdale et al. study showed there wasn't in fact much difference between cheaper supermarket brands and premium dry foods. But in recent years, there are many more dog foods being promoted as grain-free. Does Connor feel these are more beneficial? It's a bit better for sure. I mean, cutting wheat out of the dog's diet is a fantastic idea. These more natural, air quotes again, uh, kibbles, 
they try to use less heat because the market knows they don't want this really high temperature cooked product. They try to use less processing. You can get cold pressed, which uh, uses more pressure than it does heat. And there's all these cool things they can do now to produce a slightly better quality kibble. They tend to use slightly better quality ingredients. There's less wheat and corn, which has to be a good thing, but they're still using 50-60% carbohydrates just in the form of sweet potato and peas and that kind of stuff. They tend to use slightly more meat because the market is now waking up and no longer picking up what the veterinary industry is putting down. And so they are looking for more meat in their food. So cereal-based pet food isn't going to make that change. What will happen is they will start buying grain-free pet food companies, which we see is happening now, and they will push the cereal-based message for as long as possible because it's highly, highly profitable to feed really poor quality wheat and corn to dogs. And eventually they'll jump to the grain-free message. Well, of course dogs need a bit of meat in their diet and they'll increase the token meat content from 4 to 8%. It's certainly apparent that many conscientious dog owners are questioning the way they feed their dogs. One of these is Penny's neighbour, Rachel, who is thinking deeply about her new dog's diet. I'm Rachel and I have got a mini dachshund called Arlo. And how old is Arlo? When did you get him? Um, he was four months old, so now he is seven months. And what have you been doing about food so far? How, how How's he been eating and everything? So we have pretty much kept the same diet um, that his breeder had put him on. So we do a mix of kibble and then put some cooked chicken or fish or some vegetables, raw vegetables with a little bit of milk, bit of goat's milk. What proportion is that? Probably about half and half, half kibble and half, say, chicken or some tuna or what have you. And are you happy about um, what he's eating or do you sort of think, I wonder I should be doing this, blah, blah, blah? I've been happy so far because he seems very content and and that's what he was used to. But obviously, as he gets older, you start to sort of read more and hear more about what other people are doing. Well, one of the things, obviously, is this raw diet, which I've heard about and that how it can really sort of enhance a dog's behaviour and, and, and their well-being and, and health. Who have you heard um, about that from? Well, fr from a few people, one particularly who has been doing some training with Arlo, who looks after a lot of dogs and can sort of see quite marked differences, which is obviously intriguing as we're starting out. That is one, one thought. I do know that carbs can be the problem for dogs and that's why I was really pleased when Arlo came to us. He was already on a mix. Um, I would be really interested to know, you know, what the difference would be to doing very lightly cooked meat compared to just giving it totally raw. Um, what the difference would be for the dog, whether actually that would still have just as, as good a health benefits as giving it raw. Do you, would you feel more comfortable with that, do you think? At the moment, I probably would. And maybe that's just how I would start. And then I would progressively sort of then choose to go raw. But that's, uh, yeah, for me, that's how I'd like to start. And it would be interesting whether by giving Arlo that, whether that, uh, yeah, he's still getting as good a benefit or actually ultimately the best would be to go raw. I put Rachel's question to vet Richard Doyle, who is a partner in Wiley's, an independent veterinary practice in Essex that recommends raw feeding for their clients. It's a very good question. And under certain circumstances, we do advise that, for instance, when a dog's transitioning from a commercially produced 
food to a, a raw based food. Sometimes their digestive systems aren't quite competent enough to deal with the raw ingredients. It's, it's a well established fact that cooking food damages some of the nutrients in some ways. One of those ways is um, it damages the digestive enzymes that come with all raw food. So one of the things, they are very sensitive to heat. And so heat will denature enzymes. Uh, Enzymes are a type of protein. So heating will will damage protein. But the nutrients are still in there. Uh, the, The cooking will break these very complex protein molecules down into smaller molecules, which is what the digestive process does anyway. But for reassurance, there's there's very little, if any, harm in flash frying before actually feeding it. But it's it's completely different. I would take that any day of the week compared to feeding my dog starch, pasta, rice, you know, plant-based food. Uh, you know, nutritionally, those are just worlds apart. So to your neighbor, I would say, yeah, go for it while you get the confidence that actually what you're feeding is is good nutrition and good for your dog. Very little, if any, harm to be done. Richard Doyle there, answering Rachel's question from a raw feeding perspective. So in today's episode, we've delved into the whole question of the ways a carbohydrate-based diet might be detrimental to our dog's health. In the next episode, we're going to look in more detail at the history of dog feeding and how some professionals are putting these diets to the test. And we'll also be looking at the connection between other aspects of dogs' health and their nutrition. But for now, from me, Penny Borum. And me, Seb Masters. It's goodbye. We'll leave you once again with Darcy the dog apparently enjoying whatever nutrients he might be eating. And it certainly sounds that way. Bye-bye, and we hope you can join us next time. If you're looking for more information on raw feeding and canine nutrition, you can download a free copy of the best-selling guide, The Natural Feeding Handbook, from www.honeysrealdogfood.com.